reading to the Gospel of Luke and chapter 23. Gospel of Luke and chapter 3, we're going to read verses 1 through 43. Let's give our attention now to the Word of God. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you a king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. They were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea and Galilee, even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean, and he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction. He sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priest and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod. For he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. And a third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving of death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. As they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people, and women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. 
For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. The people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king. Of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man, has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. May God add his blessing to this reading of his holy word. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we ask that you would draw near now and open our eyes and our hearts and our minds and enable us to see the glory and the wonder of the love of Christ for his elect, that he would endure such treatment that we might have everlasting life. Lord, bless us tonight, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen. Last week, we began looking at the sufferings of our Savior in these final hours of his life. So that in the latter part of Luke chapter 42, Luke focuses and takes us through the agony that Christ experiences in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then the betrayal by Judas, the denial by Peter, and finally the mocking and the beating of the soldiers at our Savior's trial before the Sanhedrin. Chapter 3, or chapter 43, I'll get it right in a minute here, Uh, actually it's 23, (laughs) all right, Chapter 23 begins to describe a level of physical pain and suffering that I am relatively certain, my friends, we would rather not think about. 
It is much easier to read, to think about. It's much easier to preach about the blessings of God, about the love that God has for us, about the daily faithfulness with which he supplies our need, and about the wondrous hope of glory. But my friends, these words tonight are here for our good. They are here so that you and I may understand how God regards sin. That we might understand what it cost him to redeem us from that sin and death through our substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ. We just sang those words. Those who think of sin but lightly. Or do not suppose the evil all that great. Here, here before us tonight, you may view the nature of sin rightly. Here you will get a right estimation of the guilt you and I had for our sins taken upon our Savior. This portion of the biblical account of the sufferings of Christ is laid out before us in five stages And I'm going to ask you to do something tonight that I don't normally do. But I'm going to confess, I feel woefully inadequate to deal with this topic tonight. We heard this morning in in reference to God's sovereignty and man's responsibility that those words are hard and heavy. And indeed they were. But my friends, these words are harder and heavier than anything I think I've ever preached before. And I'm going to ask you to pray right now where you're sitting that God will be gracious to us and help us. That he will enable me and enable you to view sin rightly as we behold the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ. First, Christ falsely accused by the priest. Now, I expect that many of us in this room know something of the pain when someone says to us or perhaps tells other people something about us. It's hurtful and harmful. We know what that is like. We know how much it hurts. But my friends, the pain of hearing that kind of talk about us is only intensified when what they are saying is false. When they're telling other people lies about us. Then the pain that we feel is far 
greater. That certainly is the case here. So in chapter 23, in verse 1, the whole multitude takes Jesus and they drag him from before the Sanhedrin and they draw him to Pilate. And they there begin to accuse him and they accuse him with outright lies. They say, this man forbids us to pay tax to Caesar. That was not true. As a matter of fact, it was exactly the opposite of what Jesus taught. In Matthew 17, when he tells Peter, go and cast a hook in the sea and take the first fish that comes up, open its mouth. There you'll find a coin and go and pay the tax for us. This was a lie. They said he proclaims himself as the king. Jesus never called himself a king. He claimed to be the one who would sit at the right hand of God. Yes, the Messiah of Psalm 110.1. Yes, he never claimed himself to be a king. These men were speaking falsely. They were leveling charges that were not true. And the hypocrisy of these religious leaders is almost beyond description. Who were these people? They were the chief priest. They were the ministers of their day. They were the pastors and preachers. They were the ones who labored day after day after day in the temple, making sacrifices and offering prayers to God. These were religious people. And yet, they were telling lies about the Lord Jesus Christ. Even beyond that, in John 18 and verse 28, records how these, these Jews would not enter the household or the headquarters of Pilate because that would have made them unclean. To go into a Gentile's house, no way. It's okay to lie. It's okay to call for the execution of an innocent man, but they were concerned that if I touch something that a Gentile has touched, I won't be able to eat the Passover. They were very concerned about their religiosity. And yet to all of these accusations, we are told Jesus makes no defense. He meekly and humbly submits to his Father's will. Remember what he said last time, this is your hour and the power of darkness. God had appointed that he would be our substitute. And this was all part of God's plan. I could not help but think of Psalm 37 and verse 1. It's not easy When people are falsely accusing us, it hurts. But the Lord says, do not fret because of evildoers or be envious of wicked men. They will soon be cut down like the grass and wither away. Our Savior calmly, quietly, 
does not offer a defense, but submits to his father. He does not become anxious. He does not begin to fret because of these evil doers falsely accusing him. Well, secondly, we have Christ scourged and condemned by Pilate. So verses 4 through 25 provide us a lengthy description of what happens. Jesus is first questioned by Pilate, who was governor at the time, the Roman governor of Judea. And then he is taken to Herod, who is the ruler over the whole region of Galilee, north of Judea. And then more questions, but he makes no response. Then he is sent back to Pilate. And Pilate yet asked more questions. But he comes to this conclusion because in all of this, before Pilate to begin with, before Herod later, and before Pilate again, they said the charges could not be verified. And Pilate says in verse 14 and following, I find no fault with this man. I will release him. And the Jews are adamant. No, we want you to release Barabbas. And he listens to them. At this point, Pilate was willing to say, I will chastise him. ESV says, punish him and let him go. In verse 19, or John Verse 19, chapter 19, verse 1, we read something more specific. So Luke gives us something of a truncated account of this portion. But John records, then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. Again, the ESV says, flogged him. Now, how many of you have ever seen a scourge? Or a flog. Neither of these terms are common to our experience. But we need to not hasten through this portion of what our Savior endured. The Roman practice of scourging or flogging was nothing short of brutal It involves stripping the victim of his clothes, tying him to a stake with his hands above his head so there would be no way to shield himself from the blows that he was to receive. And then he was beaten with a flog. A flog was not just a whip. That would be bad enough. A flog was a whip of multiple strands. And in each one of those strands, a piece of bone or metal was tied. And then that flog would be raked across the back up to 39 times. And as you can imagine... This would have torn open not just the skin, but torn the tissues and the muscles of our Savior's back. 
It produced not only excruciating pain, but profuse bleeding. And it kind of makes the words, the prophecy of Psalm 129 verse 3 become much more meaningful. And the psalmist says, the plowers plowed my back. They made their furrows deep. Our Savior, in being flogged by this Roman scourge, would have literally been torn to pieces. Having been untied from the post, our Lord most likely would have crumpled to the ground because of the loss of blood and perhaps being in shock. But the soldiers were not done. They were amused at this man who claimed to be the king of the Jews. So they put a scarlet robe over his shoulders. And then they wove together a crown of thorns. My friends, this is not a group of thorns like blackberry briars or, or rose bushes that might prick your skin. These were thorns that were two to three inches long. And they were taken and pressed down upon the scalp of our Savior's head and would have produced profuse bleeding from his scalp. And then they began to strike him. They took their turns, pummeling his face with their fist. And we are told in John 19 that they began to spit upon him. Here was the King of Kings, the Lord of glory. And they had tied him and beat him and pressed the thorns upon his head and spit upon him. I just don't think you and I can fathom this kind of cruelty. And if you want to know just how bad it was, look at the words of Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52 and verse 14 says, Many were astonished at you. So his visage, his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. My friends, Jesus was so filled with bruises and blood and spit and his crown of thorns that when Pilate brought him out, the, the prophet Isaiah is saying, you would not have even recognized who this was because he was so badly bruised and bloodied. His appearance was more 
badly marred than any man. And Pilate brings him out before the people and says, Behold, your king. And the people, seeing him, said, Away with him. Crucify him. Kill him. Don't stop where you are. Go ahead and kill him. Pilate is persuaded by them. He releases Barabbas instead of Jesus. He pronounces a sentence of crucifixion. And he delivers him over to the Jews to do with what they will. Well, the third portion that Luke records here is Christ lamented by the women. So he tells us after Pilate delivers him over that he is led out before them. And several of the people, or multitude of the people, are gathered together and following. And then here we have in verse 26, as Jesus is is required to go out to the place of crucifixion. Here, the cross is placed upon his shoulders. At this point, the cross is, is not what we think of in the form of a cross. A cross of crucifixion was most likely a T. So the base was kept separate, but the cross member was forced to be carried by the victim. Verse 26 indicates that Jesus could not do that because of weakness. And so they secure Simon of Cyrene to carry that portion of the cross. The people are following in procession. The group of women begin weeping. And Jesus says to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but for yourselves and for your children. Is it not striking that Jesus at this point is more concerned for them than he is himself? But what is he saying? The days are coming. Indeed, they're coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren wombs that never bore, breasts which never nursed. Can you imagine that? You think about this congregation and what a blessing it is when we hear of of babies being born. And we see those those young lives growing up within the church. But Jesus is saying that the day is coming. But you're going to wish that had never happened. Weep for yourselves and for your children. Jesus is not talking about the final judgment. It wouldn't matter at that point whether you were pregnant or not, or you had given birth or not. What Jesus is telling them is that the, the cruelty that you see taking place upon me now is going to be far greater within a short period of time. And I believe clearly he is pointing towards 
the destruction of Jerusalem and the judgment that God would pour out upon the Jews in 70 AD. If you've never read it, look up the works of Josephus and read of the misery and pain and suffering that came upon the inhabitants of Judea and Jerusalem in 70 AD. Jesus is warning them to prepare for the judgment of God that's coming. And the scriptures are replete with warnings to us. We don't have to worry about 70 AD. And we might think things are bad now, but brothers and sisters, Jesus is constantly driving home the point. And in multiple places, we find him talking about the judgment that comes at the end. The parable of the wheat and the tares, in which when the angels come, they'll gather the tares and cast them into the fire. It will be far worse. When he tells us in chapter 25 of Matthew that the Son of Man is going to return and the angels with him and he's going to separate the entire world into the sheep and to the goats and the sheep are going to be welcomed into the kingdom prepared for them before the foundation of the world. And the goats are going to be cast into the outer darkness where there will be wailing and weeping, and gnashing of teeth. I was struck by the fact this morning with the reference to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And there we find that the great work of grace taking place in the life of the people in Thessalonica. And they not only turned to God from idols, but they were waiting for Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. My friends, there's a far greater wrath than what we see taking place at the crucifixion. There's a far greater wrath coming, and the only deliverer is the Lord Jesus Christ. We must put our faith in him. Fourthly, Christ is crucified by the Jews. Now, our Lord has endured more pain and sorrow than any of us ever will. But there's more to come. The Roman process of crucifixion was designed to be used upon the worst possible criminals. And it was designed to produce as much pain as could possibly be inflicted. When the two pieces of wood were joined together, the piece that Simon of Cyrene had carried was mounted on top of the other post. The victim was then strapped to it. And nails, large square metal spikes, were driven through the wrist and through the feet to hold them against the cross. And the cross was then dropped down into a deep hole. And the force of that caused many of the bones to become dislocated. 
If you've ever had a dislocated bone, you know how painful it is. But imagine Jesus crying in Psalm 22, all my bones are out of joint. This was part of the effects of being crucified. And then, then began the slow, agonizing process of suffocation because that's what crucifixion did with no way to support the weight of their bodies hanging there upon the cross each breath became less and less and less until the person died of asphyxiation This is why the Jews insisted on breaking the legs of the thieves so that they could not in any way push up again and get another breath. With broken legs, they would die quickly and they could be removed before the Passover began. Seven sayings that pour forth from our Savior's lips. We're going to consider those at a later time, possibly next Sunday. We'll see. But they show us that the pain of our Savior's body was only part of it. As we just sang, the real suffering was the stroke that justice gave and we'll see that particularly in the cry, man, are, are, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For now, I want to ask you to think of the scriptures we've talked about. Think of the words of the hymn, man of sorrows. What a name for the son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Why did Christ come? Why did Christ submit to this abuse and suffering? He did it, my friends, to claim, reclaim ruined sinners. You and me. He suffered this shame and indignity and pain because we needed a Savior who would bear the wrath of God in our place. He came for our sake. Well, lastly, Christ believed on by the thief. I think most of us know the story of the two criminals crucified on, with Jesus, one on his right, one on the left. Verse 39 tells us that one of them joined in the ridicule and the deriding, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other speaks in a very different manner. Suddenly, this thief, this robber, this criminal 
starts talking about the fear of God. He starts talking about the justice of the punishment he and the other thief were receiving. And the obvious injustice of the crucifixion of Christ. Now, J.C. Ryle, I believe, is correct when he says men usually die as they have lived. There's not a whole lot of true deathbed conversions that take place. Men usually die as they have lived. But not always, and not here. Each of this man's words was strikingly out of character given the kind of life that he had lived. This man is not cursing and swearing. He's not seeking vengeance on his executioners. Neither is he showing contempt for the Lord Jesus Christ. Rather, he acknowledges and he confesses his sinfulness the justice of his punishment, the righteousness of Christ, and perhaps by far the most amazing change is that he now looks in faith. Some texts say calling Jesus Lord. Others, Jesus, Savior. He asks for mercy. He asks that the Lord would remember him when he comes into his kingdom. And he receives assurance of that when Jesus responds, today, today, you will be with me in paradise. Paradise is a biblical term used for heaven. The apostle Paul uses it in 2 Corinthians 12 when he says, I knew a man in Christ 14 years ago, whether in the body or not in the body, I do not know, but he was caught up into heaven. And the next verse, he says, he was caught up into paradise. Paradise is not some mystical place between heaven and, and earth or hell. Paradise is a term used for heaven. Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The soul of Jesus went immediately into the presence of God. And he tells this thief, today, before the day is done, you will be with me where I am. Not some thousands and thousands of years in purgatory. Today, the moment you close your eyes in death, you will be with me. In paradise. You may remember the question asking, verse, or question and answer number 37 of our catechism What benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? And the answer is the souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory you don't have to wait if you're trusting in Christ if you're resting in Christ if you're calling upon Christ just as this thief was on the cross in the final hours of his life 
then immediately you will pass into glory with Christ. My friends, we have seen this incomprehensible scene this evening of our Savior's suffering. I think it's beyond anything we can rightly fathom. But don't forget this incomprehensible scene of mercy that Christ in all his pain in the midst of his suffering to his dying breath has a concern for lost sinners and he's drawing men graciously to himself. That's our Savior. Lord, help us. Help us to see the guilt, the sin, the suffering that you and I deserved taken upon himself, Christ, in our place. That we, like this sinner, could have eternal life and the forgiveness of our sins. Listen to the closing words of our second hymn, number 257, verse 4. Here in Christ, we have a firm foundation. Here, the refuge of the lost. Christ, the rock of our salvation. His the name of which we boast. Lamb of God for sinners wounded Sacrifice to cancel guilt. None, none shall ever be confounded who on him their hope have built. Let's pray together. Lord, we shudder to say thank you for these words. They are hard. They are heavy indeed. But we thank you that there was one who was willing to bear the awful load for our sake. We thank you for the indescribable gift of mercy that Christ bestows to all who call upon him in faith. Lord, would you move in our midst tonight in a special way as we weigh these words. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.